My name is Steve, and uh, many of you might know that. That's right. And uh, so part of the time, I get to uh, be an assistant pastor here, uh, but I'm also a full-time worker uh, for University of Nebraska Foundation, um, but they do not share the opinions that I share necessarily. I think you got to say that kind of thing. Um, but we're going to be looking at Jonah again this week, and I'm, I'm actually excited uh, to look at Jonah because what we see in Jonah, I mean, it's this epic, epic poem that we get to see in Jonah 2. Um, and much has been made of the story of Jonah uh, with uh, little cartoon characters and the like. And my wife was telling me of one of uh, where Jonah's in the belly um, and lighting a fire as if like the seaweed you pull out and somehow there's a spark in the belly. I don't, I don't really know how it all works, but I remember Pinocchio kind of being like that um, in the belly of a great fish. And I guess what I'm asking you to do is, is put some of those memories on hold for now. They're fun to have. And, and, and try to face this poem with new, fresh, uh, new, fresh perspective. Um, a lot is going on here, and I don't have time to cover all of it. Love to further a conversation later on. But I think the main question that Jonah is asking us is, what happens when life turns bitter and dark? What happens? What do you do when life is bitter and dark? It ultimately, if you can get through the epic, the grand story, the events of a big fish swallowing, not, not get over it, but, but, but see it for what it is. At the heart of this passage is Jonah demonstrating to us some meandering faith that starts to melt just a little bit by the end of his time, three days and three nights in the belly of what he calls Sheol, or the place of death. And I think this, this has much implication for us today, and especially if you're someone who are, who's actually dealing with some bits of darkness or bitterness. Um, I think there's a word for you as well. May, may God penetrate his life into your own soul. So let's consider that theme as we read Jonah 1, 17 through 2.10. Listen as I read. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I 
with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Father, for your power to connect for all the distractions to fade away, lifting up the hearts of those whose spirit is fainting, praying that your light shines upon them, and that it would be this not shaming light, but a warm, filling light. Would you do that by your spirit, your word, and grace? We pray in Christ's name, amen. So I get the privilege of... of uh, working through this epic poem. Um, As a person who is an outside observer to poetry, I really don't know what's going on in a lot of poetry. Sometimes I try my hand at it. um, And, uh, you know, actually it's hard to know if you're you're doing anything, you know, doing well with it. Um, All that to say, Jonah is saying a lot here. Uh, The crazy thing is he's expressing... His prayer is being expressed in the most unlikely place, in the belly of a great fish, right? And at the middle of it all is sort of this silent companion or silent power. I don't know what the right word is, but it's the Lord appointing things, moving things, continuing his mission to the world despite Jonah's best efforts to thwart it, right? God's advancing toward the world with what? His steadfast love. That's how he approaches his creatures on earth, his steadfast love. And that's a bit of what we'll see in Jonah. But this prayer, it's not just a typical prayer. It's a prayer that we've seen before. If you spend any time hearing the Psalms, we read some in our worship service. Uh, But it's a lament. It's specifically a lament, which is a a passionate expression of sorrow and grief. Now, you can have sorrow and grief about anything, right? Jonah here is expressing some sorrow, we like to hope, over his own mistakes, his own failure, his own disobedience, his own rebellion. But he also is experiencing, we know, sorrow, what we learned last week from Thomas, over evil that he sees going on against his people in Nineveh. And so there's this, it's this complicated thing that's going on with him, that on the one hand, he's been running away. He's been running away, which if you try to run away from the Lord who made heavens and earth, you're not going to get very far. You can't outrun God. And so he's acting a bit crazy uh, by doing it. And he's starting to see his folly. And he goes into a prayer of lament. And we'll see this lament etched out in three different kind of segments. That's what I like to call it. Uh, the first is we're going to see the setting of the lament. Oh, where, where is it located? Let's just spend some time in there. I want us to see the source of the lament. Like Where is he directing his lament? And wh- where is it coming from inside of him? So those two aspects. And then finally, the point. So, and, and really what I'm trying to do is get us to think about maybe possibly if you find yourself in a dark place, 
which I, I feel like Matt asked me to, to preach on dark, dark things often. So thank you very little, Matt. Because why don't I get the ones that are like, you know, skipping and dancing? But maybe I'm a person familiar with sorrow. I don't know. But if you're in that place, uh, this is a safe place. Um, the counselor inside of me wants to say a, a little caveat, you know, it, it is important to have support as you start to discover these things about your own heart. Uh, but we're going to look at the point of this lament so that we too could be those who lament over our own uh, sin sickness, over the evil we see in the world, that we have a place to take it. Because I typically am a person who just can get into a bout of complaining and, and, you know, and get with miserable people who want to be cynical and complain. You know, I'm, do you know anyone like that? Are you like that? I'm like that. And I, I think Jonah has a different way. Or at least the scripture coming through Jonah is a different way of approaching um, the sick stuff we see, the hard things we see. And so our first thing that we see is the setting. And it's right in front of our face. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish in verse 17. And our minds naturally want to ask the question, how is this physically, physically possible? Watch National Geographic. And some of the, the folks who love to search after the Leviathan and these big beasts of like the unhindered land or the untouched lands. Um, but I'd also say this, Jonah is not actually asking that question. He's not concerned. A great big fish is right there. Why? Because his world assumes a cosmic presence, a transcendent presence, a mystic, a sense of the divine. You know, most, even in our modern world, most of the world believes this. It's in our Western kind of mindset, we've sort of reduced life to this world only. What we see, touch, feel here as Nebraskans, we're such practical people, and, th and that could be our default. So you mistrust anything that seems outside of your experience, except for if you're a farmer. If you're a farmer now, you, I mean, it's, it's like a hope and a prayer. You hope the weather works out, Right? so that you can have a flourishing crop. You hope nothing comes in to destroy your crops. There is sort of a transcendence in our, our agricultural state. But for the most part, we work out of kind of a this world mindset. So it can be hard for us to believe it's possible to be swallowed by a great fish. Unless you come here and you believe in the divine and you have a similar worldview, uh, and I think things in, in events like this actually help me to be, be a stronger believer. Uh, do I want things that are easily, that I can easily describe and understand if I'm dealing with God of the universe? Uh, if, if so, I'm probably worshiping somebody made out of my own image. What would Steve do, you know, if he had big cosmic boots? Um, that's just not what we're dealing with. This is a divine perspective. But the other thing to note here about Jonah's experience is this happened particularly to Jonah at a particular point in time for a particular purpose. 
right? So on the one hand, could this happen? Sure. Has it? Maybe it has happened. I don't know. I mean, who's going to report back? Yeah, I got swallowed by this big fish, and we had a fire inside the belly and whatever. Um, it could happen. But I'd, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that we should expect it will because the purpose has been fulfilled here. It's advancing God's mission to the Ninevites. Really, it's showing his covenantal love to the outsiders or to the perceived outsiders. And we'll see the insiders and outsiders by the end of the sermon today are really not all that different. But this is showing, demonstrating in in an epic way, God's covenantal love to the world. It's moving it forward. Needless to say... This is not a typical, typical set, setting for a lament. But then again, what is a typical setting? If you experience intense sorrow, uh, there's no setting that's great. I think what we learn from Jonah is it's better to pay off now than to pay off later uh, when you're sick with sorrow and you feel that darkness just caving in on you. Uh, as it is with him. He describes the setting as being in the belly of Sheol, verse 2, if you look there with me. I mean, it's a a reference to darkness and death. Um, There are these different words in the Old Testament. Some of them can sound similar. Hades is an example of this. Sometimes Hades can refer to eternal punishment. Um, Often places like Sheol Don't just think like, oh, it's the place away from God. It's actually a place of death and darkness. Uh, The best image I could come up with was thinking about, I read this one time in my life. It's Homer's um, The Odyssey. Um, And then I watched, oh, brother, where art thou? And I thought, well, that's a much easier thing. That's palatable. But if you ever read Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus goes down into the other world or the underworld right, to, to figure out why is Poseidon mad at me? It sounds like a little middle school battle going on there. Uh, no offense, middle schoolers, but it's what happens, right? Um, actually, I should say an adult battle. I'm having those kinds of battles all the time uh, with my friends. Why are you mad at me? Um, so he goes down to find out why Poseidon is angry with him. And you, what you witness there as you read through it are these trapped souls wanting deliverance. They want to get out of there, and they're moaning and groaning. It's really haunting. Um, and I think, I think that's probably the feeling or the sentiment that's going on with Jonah. And it, it, it's the state of, of emptiness, of nothingness in the belly. He doesn't describe what the belly looks like. Why? Probably because that's not the point, but also light doesn't shine in there. It's utter darkness. I, I've never experienced that kind of darkness, and I've been in the, uh, the outstretches of the sand hills uh, where there's not a lot of light pollution. Uh, but still, the sun, is, the sun is reflecting off the moon, and it still finds its way to shine upon us, right? Like, off that reflection. Even if you throw blankets over your head, you cannot escape light. He's in utter darkness, in the belly of Sheol, Uh, You can go online and see these portraits or portrayals. Uh, Artists have kind of done these renderings of what maybe Jonah was experiencing, and I I don't know that it gets at it. You almost just allow your imagination to think about it, this haunting place. And I I love what we learn here in this setting. 
This is the setting that I think that he doesn't have a lot of words for. And so you know what he starts doing? He starts quoting Scripture. Uh, we, we hear echoes of the Psalms uh, throughout this. So actually, we hear echoes of cr- the creation story. Um, and we hear them going throughout. And so all the, these kind of r- wise people, probably very smart academics, are like, uh, but I don't know them, you know. But they're like, well, it's, he's just stealing language. And, and I'm like, actually, this guy, is inf- he's infused with the right source for language. If you don't know, and here's my point, if you don't know what to say when you're in the midst of your sorrow, look to the Psalms. It can express things for you. Uh, we, we, we just, we sang or we read 42, Psalm 42, call to worship, perfect example. But there's things like Psalm 75 and 77 and Psalm 88. We hear echoes here, right? He says, all your waves and your billows pass over me from Psalm 88. The bars close upon me forever. You brought up my life from the pit and put my feet upon the rock. We should assume it would have said, but he doesn't say that because he's just quoting portions of the Psalms here. He says, my life was fainting away which sounds a lot like Psalm 77. My spirit faints within me is what Psalm 77 says. The Scriptures give us words when we have no words. And if you're a sufferer or finding yourself in a particularly dark place, it's a good place to start. Jonah is on death's doorstop. Yeah, doorstep. And at the end of his rope, nowhere left to run. Why? Because... You can't outrun God's grace. You can't outrun it. Any astute Nebraskan might read Jonah's words here and think, well, he brought it upon himself, so why should I feel any empathy? He, he made his bed. He gets to lay in it, right? He botched his calling. He had this calling to go, and, and it turned out that these people actually relented of their bad, you know, bad, their evil and their utter abuse of people. They turned from it, their violent ways. And he botched that calling. He had an opportunity, and he missed it. And I get it. It's hard to have empathy for someone who goes out like that. So just hang with me. Haven't we been those kinds, that kind of person? Um, uh, the person who's just super demanding, controlling, dominating. Um, maybe it's dominating the whole, your whole family. Um, everybody's got to follow your expectations, your agenda. Uh, he has a, an agenda for God. And he's angry about it. God's doing something different. Doing something that's outside of his concept of what should be done with evil in the world. I love Tyler's sermon a few weeks ago. Uh, He brought out the illustration of the prodigal, uh, the father tending to the prodigal and to the elder son. The father runs after the prodigal who squandered everything, and he also goes out to the elder brother, right, who's standing outside of the, 
the party and he's pumping his fist. He's like, you guys shouldn't have any fun out there. You know, he's hearing the music. You can just hear him brooding. Like, ah, I'm working. And it's probably 8 o'clock at night. It's like, what are you working for, man? You know, the sun's going down, bro. And he's out there and he's brooding. And, and the father goes to him. You know what I would have liked to have changed of that parable? And I know that's just, that's ridiculous to say about God's scriptures. But wouldn't you have loved to see the elder brother just release his anger? Have you ever seen someone just in a moment, they, they get it, and, they re, and the anger just comes out, and they calm down, and they change? When I see that, that's almost like a, more of a miracle to me than seeing a great big fish swallow someone. To see, one, see someone that's raging and full of hatred and bigotry about a nation suddenly have that sort of anger and coldness melt away. It's pretty amazing. I think that the church has a lot to learn from this. Um, a lot of divisiveness that we see today in at least Protestant circles, I can only speak to that, our, our church, in, in our churches are the elder brother fighting with the younger brother, the prodigal brother type, right? The older brother, I earned it. You squandered it. The younger brother, yes, but I have experienced the folly of the world, and I understand grace, and I have plenty to teach you. See, God actually cares about sinners and tax collectors. True. What if we're both right and we're both wrong? Uh, we both feel that we've earned God's grace in some way, you know? Differently, though, the elder followed all the rules. The younger earned it by exhausting all other pathways and coming back to God and knows that reliance on God's grace is what will make you whole. What if it's both? And if it is both, what if we're no different? If you're an elder brother type or if you're a, a prodigal, uh, perhaps we need to take a moment and just consider that God is actually in pursuit of both of us. We both need help. Jonah here has taken on kind of that elder brother posture, but then he gives up his anger for a moment, and he gives into God's plan. And I just think some of us would do well to do that. Stop stoking the fires of hatred towards someone or some group or some politician or some person in your neighborhood. And I say that with a caveat because if you've recently been wounded, it takes time to sort out, years even. But if you find yourself in a safe place around safe people, God might be inviting you to release your life to Him, to release control of your anger, to stop stoking that fire to not wait till you're in the belly of darkness to do it. That becomes the setting of Jonah's lament. We also see the source of his lament in verses 7 through 9. For you to engage in meaningful lament, your sorrow over failure and tragedy, the source of your lament makes all the difference, right? And we notice two aspects here of the lament. That first, it's directed toward God. And second, that it derives from his own bitterness. 
So both are happening at the same time in Jonah. And God, God doesn't actually give a commentator, you know, he's not like, hey, get your prayer journal out and be in a great place before you can actually say your prayer. He takes you where you are. I love that about Jonah's life. He takes him where he is. And first it's directed at God, which is the safest place to direct your lament. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you. You know, in your temple. And the temple is where God places his foot, they say. His whole presence couldn't be here in full. Not yet, because we couldn't handle his glory. It would destroy. It would crush us with the weight of our sin. You think you understand how your sin sickness works or how, how, you know, the rebellious nature of your heart, you have no idea how broken we are. His glory shines light on that. We couldn't handle it. The temple is kind of where part of his presence is that feels and heals, sees you and it draws near and it heals you. And so he's remembering that and he's directing this lament and he's acknowledging that salvation belongs to the Lord. And to be honest, I can forgive Jonah's hatred and bigotry That much I understand about God. God's in the business of forgiving the vilest people, all kinds of people, all types. But Jonah surrenders to God, and then he, it sounds like he blames God. He goes a little bit further than I would, you know, directing my prayer to God. He's actually blaming God for his predicament. Did you hear that? Verse 3, you cast me into the deep. Your waves... Your billows pass over me. I mean, it kind of has bugged me since I've been studying this. Jonah actively chose to flee from God's presence. And when he's caught, it's at that point that he turns back to God. I'm like, bro, you're blaming God for your predicament? You said throw me overboard. God didn't do that. So what's going on here? I think what's happening here is God's revealing a bit of his, how his character works. And it's not in the way that you and I typically think, right? It's what reformers in in church history call God's secondary causes. And, And that's to say this, God is not the author of our evil choices, but he doesn't leave us as our choices deserve the consequences of our choices. He goes, he goes much deeper. He integrates our evil and rebuilds our lives. And he, and, he, and he brings his glory to bear. He builds his kingdom in the world through the evil that's done. He uses our worst for our good and for the good of the world. And Jonah kind of knew this. That's why he feels a freedom to say, God, actually, look, I know you're the God of secondary causes. So in essence, you put me here. And based upon your character, I need you to deliver me. There's a boldness in this, right? Like, and I, I have this like, aw shucks, you should be humble guy. Like, you put yourself in this place. Um, don't ask too much. He's going all out. He's saying, like, look, based upon your character and your name, you need to deliver me for the sake of the world. And you know, and God does it. He spits him out. 
the fish vomits him out. God demonstrates a greater glory by doing this. He not only reaches one of the most wayward people among us in Jonah, but he displays his power over monstrous beings, beasts of the deep. And I think that's something for us to take, take away. How much more is your life in your setting in Lincoln, Nebraska, not in the face of some incredible um, conflict like Jonah was facing and his people were facing? How much more is God caring and guiding you? How much more are you secure? How much more does he use your worst for your good? I think this should give us an encouragement, a lot of confidence um, that God is not only with you, but he's directing your paths. It's directed at God, the lament. The second thing is it derives from his own bitterness. It's directed at God, but his bitterness is what brought him into sorrow. And he had sorrow, yes, over the shame of his own decision-making processes, but over Nineveh as well. Uh, Thomas brought up the fact that Nineveh, were, they were sacrificing bodies. Uh, they were abusing people. It was pure evil, death, and violence. And unless you've been to war or some kind of warring in your family, you may not have experienced anything like it. Um, there's prophecies against Nineveh. God's judgment would be eventually, unless they turn from their ways, would be to break in and, and destroy everything and wipe them out to keep evil from progressing. But we see that God gives Nineveh another chance, and Jonah wants no part of it because the evil is emblazoned upon Jonah's mind and heart, and he can't let go of it. But by the end, he's, that's un, it's being, becoming undone. He starts to give his life over. But you even see a little bit of like holding on, verse 8. Those who, okay, it's great. God's going to forgive, but those who... Pay attention to idols, vain idols. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's sort of like, he's like, yeah, God's grace is great. It's going to work, and I'm, I'm with your plan. And you idol worshipers, you better be careful. God's watching you, and he don't like people who are worshiping vain idols. It's, you know what I mean? It's like a punch in the gut still. He can't accept the fact that these people could be saved ultimately, fully, completely, it's still kind of a part of him. And I, that gives me a lot of encouragement because we are works of progress, right? We're in process too. That God is actually uncovering more and more about his covenantal love as we move along in life. And I just want to reflect upon that a little bit. And I know um, as you start opening up the closet, like what it means to deal with your own resentment and the kind of work that it takes, you really do need a support system around. But if you've ever been through 10 rounds with someone or some group of, of people, it would be natural, you know, 10 rounds of just battling um, your perspective against their perspective on something. And they've wronged you, you've wronged them, um, but they're un unwilling to see their side of it. Um, it is a deep struggle. It's easy to feel deep resentment about it, uh, especially if the other parties involved don't see their contribution at all or their failure. They're not willing to release it 
or to say it out loud. You know, it might be easier to release someone if they're actually repentant. I don't think it is. Jonah, the Ninevites do turn from their evil. They put down their weapons of abuse. They mourn over their destructive behavior, and he still has a hard time. He's still a little bit stuck. The wounds are so deep, and it leads him into a downward spiral of depression, loneliness, and self-destruction. He attempts to wipe out his life because of his anger. He's in a bad spot. But it's even there that God pursues, which is the final point of the lament. Even though Jonah isn't there completely, he is melting, his heart is melting before the Lord. And we see in verse 9 God's unhindered pursuit. Jonah, likely blinded by his own self-deceit still, as we will see by the end of chapter 4, has his heart softening before God. He's starting to release it. He peels back the layers of Jonah's heart to show him the deeply powerful pathway of covenantal love. That is to say this, that what we're seeing in verse 9 is that God is fiercely committed to you and to me despite our best attempts to flee from him, to run away. And how do I know that? It's because of these two phrases in verse 9, verse 8 and verse 9. Jonah uses phrases that are true of God's character. Steadfast love, he uses that along with salvation belongs to the Lord. Steadfast love and salvation. First, he describes steadfast love as the source of hope for the world. And again, with in mind that Hebrew scriptures are infused in, into his mind and to his soul, this is a term, the Hebrew term here is only used a couple of times, and it's used to refer to God's hesed, his covenantal love, the oath-keeping love, the promise, the, the never-forsaking love. And it's hearkening back specifically to the Exodus community, who you might recall were saved from slavery into a land of more freedom, and they're going to wander around and get to know their Lord, and then they'll be brought into the promised land. So there is this kind of game plan. Um, and, and yet we see them, so, so they get kind of this new world to live in and then a way to live it, right, with the Ten Commandments. And what happens there in Exodus 34? The people just got done witnessing God coming down, giving instructions to the people. Here's what it means to be human again. You know, before, you were under oppressive behavior, abuse. Like if, if you've ever been under that and you come out of that, you're like, how do, how do people actually really live? What does it mean to treat your neighbor well? It's just really hard to know. And so God comes down through Moses and starts to describe the world that he made. And we have Genesis, the book of Genesis. He starts to describe what the laws are like, what it, what it looks like to actually love your neighbor in Leviticus. How to take care of your porch. You know, there's these little laws in there like, you should shovel your porch when it's full of stuff. I'm serious. And it, actually, I've always been afraid of like Leviticus, kind of like, I don't know what's going on. But when you start to just sit there a minute, you're like, wow, oh, this is pretty practical things. 
I should shovel my walk so someone doesn't slip on it. I mean, that just makes sense. But if you've been under a world of oppression and slavery, you wouldn't necessarily think about those things, right? So God comes down, the mountain shakes, everything trembles, right? And God, with this booming glory, is right there with him. His presence is amazing, and it's filling the people up. And they're like, we will never forget you. We will always follow you. And a few moments later, at least in the story, they build, they build an idol, a golden calf, to worship it. And yet, at their worst moment in human history, when, when, um, when the whole world is at jeopardy, the mission of the world, blessings to the nations at jeopardy, when they start worshiping a golden calf, what does God say? Exodus 34, this is how he describes himself. I am the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not, I am powerful, bow down. That much is, was obvious. Like, no, I'm a God of love, steadfast love, love that never leaves, that love that never forsakes. That's the kind of love that I deal with. That's how I deal with my people. And here's the other thing. Jonah in his life, though he doesn't know it, is forecasting a different time when another one would throw himself overboard and display the ultimate steadfast love. And that's what we see in Jesus, right? Like he first he starts out, he calms the sea which echoes back to this Jonah story. They're on the boat. They're freaking out. The storm comes up. The sailors are freaking out. And Jesus calms the sea. He whispers into the sea, and he says, calm, be at peace. And God does that to this fish. Um, but, but Jesus doesn't throw himself overboard on that one, right? Why? Because he was waiting for another time when he actually would. And that's what happens on the cross, as he gets thrown overboard into the billows and the breakers of God's divine justice, of his just wrath for evil in the world. And God continues his mission to the world and displays his steadfast love ultimately in Christ. Maybe we don't need to grieve without hope. Maybe if we know that there is one, if you, you have a faith commitment in Jesus, if there is one who went into the belly of death itself and fought your greatest enemies, maybe we don't need to fight so much with one another. Instead, maybe we could turn to lament. And maybe we can reach, maybe we can cry out in a similar way as Jonah. And maybe, maybe knowing that, look, that my heart, that, that God, even though we operate in categories with people like Jonah, right? Like, it's, it's people who are, um, these people who are displaying um, kindness and whatever it is in Nebraska. Um, they keep their lawn really nice. Those are the people I want to be around. It's the people who drive their truck on the lawn that I'm like, I don't know, that's iffy. Um, you know, maybe God doesn't operate in those kind of categories. 
And, and really, his, his mission to Nineveh is to teach us about his covenant love that covers the ends of the earth. Could we be a part of that? You know what it's going to take is, is, is for us to, just a little bit, to allow our hearts to melt away. Um, if you need to hold on for a little bit, you can, but the trajectory should be releasing, surrendering, because that's going to be the safest place for you. The other way is self-destructive. It takes you down into the belly of Sheol. It, takes you, it isolates you from everything that's healthy and good. Jonah, the prodigal prophet, comes back. You can't outrun God's mercy, and you shouldn't try. Rather, you should let his mercy roll over you and allow that to guide your steps as a church. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Jonah and for all that you teach us. There's epic things in here. Uh, you teach us how to lament. And when we have no words, you have the words. You, you know what it's like to lament because you yourself stayed three days in hell and to battle our greatest enemies. You came out the other side. And so um, help us to um, see that, understand that, embrace that. So we might be those who would lament well, praying this in Christ's name, amen.